Hello, welcome to The Work, the podcast. The Work, the podcast, that's it. Um, this is John Sumter, and I'm here with my co-host, Gina Kelly, coming as we do to talk to you in depth about the hard topics and hard questions in HR. Today, we are fortunate to have Mike Bollinger from Cornerstone On Demand with us. And Mike, Mike is one of those figures who's been all over the industry for a very long time, and he's got um, an old hand's view of the things that are going on today. So with that, Mike, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Mike Bollinger, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at Cornerstone. And I'll just give you a quick run on the history. So started out back in the day to uh, be in finance. And like many of us in HR, stumbled across technology. And so early in my career was going to be a technologist and actually culminated at one point in becoming a CIO, which meant I had hands in all kinds of HR functions. But 20 years ago, I decided to, as many of us do, I took a, a mid-career change and remade myself into an HR practitioner and thought leader, self-anointed. Um, did uh, two tours of duty each, both at Oracle and SAP, and have been at Cornerstone for the last seven years. When I came to Cornerstone originally, I came to purposely build an organization that, was con that consisted of, of several things, a value group, uh, a compliance quality and risk group, and also what we call the thought leadership group, a strategic group. And these are individuals who, like many of us, speak and research and those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, that Cornerstone allowed me to put those unique functions together, and it remains to this day. A couple of years ago, I transitioned um, using appropriate uh, succession planning techniques to another leader and became uh, uh, this vice president of strategic initiatives where I work with clients in, in a capacity around thinking through strategies as well as leading Cornerstone's um, uh, People Research Lab uh, in our global skills report from last year and getting ready to release a new one of this year. So I'm grateful to the industry for the time that I've been able to be a part of it and grateful for Cornerstone giving me the opportunity to do so. And I did right. that in one minute, John. That's good. Well, it's fantastic. Um, so, so what are you seeing? What when, when you look out into the world right now, what's what's the turmoil in the marketplace, and what's really kicking out there? Well, so a lot of times everybody hangs their hat on the pandemic and the new normal and then the great resignation, which was really the great reprioritization. Um, I, I think that the, the global macro environment of those kinds of things has actually created a, a, a point in time. Everything's an ebb and flow from a history perspective. My mom's a history pro, uh, professor. Um, we're at a point in time where as humans, we get an opportunity to really think through what is it that I wanna do? Um, and that can become a really interesting conversation with not just uh, your employer and your friends, but also with your spouse and your family and the opportunity, like I changed my career many times, the opportunity to really rethink what it is that you wanna do with your career. So if, if I take it from that macro point of view, and then the HR functions that need to be responsive to that, 
I think what we find ourselves in as both practitioners as well as human beings and employees is a, a time where we're exploring new areas of what it means to be in an employee-employer contract. That's interesting. So, so when I look at the technology, what the technology seems to be doing is the exact opposite of what you described. The technology wants to put you in a box. It wants you to meet a very fixed set of requirements, and it wants to have nothing to do with you if you don't fit in the box and you don't meet the set of requirements. That's how recruiting works. That's how most of the training management and development stuff works. That's how succession planning works. That's how performance management works. Is is It's exactly not what you're talking about. So how do we get to where you're talking about? Well, How do you buy what I just said? Well, I do, because part of that is driven by the vestiges of the way that it used to be, right? So when it used to be a different relationship as an employer-employee contract, then you could drive job description as the central fulcrum point for the rest of the technology and so on. I think this recognition now that um, that, that relationship might have changed, and we're seeing this in, our, in the Global Skills Report, a little bit of a plug there, is what we call a confidence gap. So although employers feel very strongly that they're making an investment and with varying levels of success, the employees don't feel like they're able to consume it at the same level. And that confidence gap is statistically significant. I always have to pause there because it's hard to say statistically significant. Um, and we see that expanding. So when you talk about systems that are not necessarily being responsive to the employee experience, I think that's a true statement. But I also think that there's a genuine desire on the part of both the, the vendor community as well as the employer community trying to deliver against that employee experience to change that. Nothing like that happens overnight, but I'm starting to see motions around things that uh, provide for that. Not necessarily AI and machine learning, but some really interesting technologies around um, interacting with the employee. Uh, you're seeing AR, VR kinds of things. You are seeing um, uh, true, not just chatbots, but true interactive people conversations that can occur um, uh, because of some of the advances in machine learning. And, and I think that's where you're going to start to see some of those changes in the, in the interface, if you will. Finally, I'd say that I think HR had to do many things that they didn't expect they'd have to do during the pandemic. And so they're learning new ways of approaching this as well. That's interesting. I, I wish I shared your optimism for it. I, I think um, um, that the categorization dynamic is going to get pretty intense um, because it, there, I don't know how you go about institutionalizing or turning into software the kind of personnel judgment that used to be common in, in the workforce. And that's if you've had a thousand or fifteen hundred people work directly for you over time. You learn some things about how people work that you can't learn if you've worked in a small fractured organization or been a department head for ten years. And we don't really have. We used to have the military, and it doesn't work very well anymore. But we don't really have a way of getting at that judgment that's necessary to make the sort of future that you describe happen, right? And and that makes sense. 
It does. Think of it in baby steps. So do you remember, as I'm sure you do, both of you remember, um, employee self-service and manager self-service was this huge thing, remember? Mm -hmm. And it was really a term that seemed to imply I can get you to do my work for me. And um, so at one point it was going to be, there were going to be you know, document taxonomies and all these things that you were going to be able to use with manager self-service and employee self-service. Well, it didn't quite yield the promise that we all thought it was going to have. However, it did yield some efficiencies that freed us up to do other things. As an employee in any organization now, can you imagine having not having some level of self-service, which I consider self-access, um, to do most of the work that you would want to do in terms of your relationship with your employee, employer records, address changes and bank changes and all those kinds of things. So there is this notion that it's going has the promise of all these things, and then it settles down and actually creates some synergies. Now, if we can get software to free up cycles for that which is mundane, it does allow us to create connections for that which is innovative. So I think that's where you're going to start seeing the exploration next when I talk about things like AR and VR and some of the new interfaces, because we're, we need to, in many cases, divorce ourselves from the keyboard um, that's where some of that innovation will occur. It won't occur overnight, and it'll occur in little little bits and pieces. But when you look in retrospect five years from now, you go, ah, I see where we got. I, I just wonder if that'll happen fast enough. The demographics are changing so that, that, that what you didn't talk about there is opportunity is gated in all organizations, and it's gated for a very narrow class of people inside of that organization. I agree with that. And if you want to move people into new opportunities, you actually have to modify how that how that organizational bias thing works. And it's a very complex variable that that seems to be pretty resilient. And we seem and, to be moving backwards on it, right? And the technology is really focused on what I would consider the the 30% of those of us who were surprised when we had to work from home and it was such a there's still 70% of the workforce that doesn't work that way. And so right. our tools don't necessarily support that as well either. So you're starting to see focus in our industry around things like how do I handle the deskless worker? What does that frontline worker look like? And making those investments there because um, in a world of great reprioritization, um, employers struggle. And uh, they don't struggle just to fill jobs. They struggle to be a continuing uh, uh, firm without it. So everybody used to always say, people are our greatest asset. What's happening right now brings that into full focus so that we have to meet it. And I think that's where the innovation will come from. It's interesting. So one of the things I know about you is you, is you love to notice how old becomes new and new becomes old and, and follow that transition. What's the funniest thing that you're seeing that you've seen before? Skills. Um, uh, we'll, we'll start there because I'm spending a lot of time there. A lot of, a lot of people think they've just discovered skills. So this is going to be an interesting part of our conversation. Well, 
the um, for the for those <laughs> listening to the podcast that can't see my gray hair, um, uh, I always tell people this: in two thousand and three, I had a full skills catalog. We called it a qualification catalog at the time. I could do a gap analysis against my position. I could get learning suggested to me, and then I could that learning could impart the qualification for that particular skill. What we found was that it was really, really powerful at the time and very consistent with what we're thinking about now. The difference was once you set up that qualification catalog, you had to maintain it. So, and stuff changes all the time. So it became really hard, cratered under its own weight. So what we did instead was we came up with the competency model. And the competency model was this peanut butter approach or this level up approach because it was easier to maintain competencies. But again, um, although useful, not necessarily useful along the lines that you and I just talked about. So <laughs> what's come up now is skills are new, that which is old is new again, and it's, it's being driven by a number of things. But the difference this time is, is that they can be, A, inferred because of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And John knows that I believe that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. But its ability to infer um, it at speed has given us the opportunity to think through skills again because it can be maintained in a way moving forward. Now, so now we find ourselves in a place where the systems can actually do what we set out to do in 2003. And the next question is, are those skills and uh, the capabilities that we assume to associate with them, are they real? And how can they be inferred through behaviors? Because skills can't just come from, hey, I took a course, I'm skilled. And it can't just come from certifications. It also has to have another series of, of evidence. And we're starting to see mechanisms that are trying to approach that. Well, that's interesting. What do you think? I've seen it coming from deep text learning, as an example. I'm seeing it come from people trying to take into account the potential capabilities. What is my work experience? Does that apply to a skill? Um, it, it's becoming, uh, the conversation is around, how does this go beyond self-reporting, as an example? And then the last thing, which I find really fascinating and, and very forward-thinking and very encouraging, for years we've always thought about having um, a, uh, a portable briefcase or your CV that you own, right? So it was your own uh, set of qualifications and criteria. Cornerstone joined a loose consortium of group of a group called the Velocity Network Foundation, which is a blockchain based by which I can carry my particular uh, credentials and my particular things that I would have around capabilities inside my own blockchain briefcases, you will, and give that out to various organizations as, if they ask for it. Particularly useful in the financial sectors and in the healthcare sectors, but it then becomes a, a case of I own me versus the employer owning my data. And so I give those pieces out. And I, I encourage anybody listening to go look at the, the Velocity Network Foundation. I don't have a vested interest there. There are many of us as vendors starting to become a part of that. Um, I see that as the next level up for skills. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I mean, I think we've been watching the area of blockchain closely uh, as in terms of its confluence with HR. I have a question, though, about skills. You know, the skills I've acquired might not be the skills I'm looking to use in the future. So how do you balance that if you're a candidate and you're putting yourself forward for opportunity in the future and you're getting pigeonholed with, with you know, where your skills have been previously? I'm just curious if you've seen anything in that area. Well, I think first off, I agree that's it. that's part of the issue, which is, and it's partly driven by this notion that the skills can be represented by simply by a job description or by a CV. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I started talking about those, the potential for some new interfaces when it comes to the way that we interact with our systems, I think one of those things is we need to be able to um, uh, take into account the way that that analysis is made. And so I do know of some organizations that are trying to do that um, in a way that extends beyond just the skills taxonomy. Um, They don't want to be, I heard this the other day, really, really cracked me up. I've got four or five different skills taxonomy, and that means that the the employer needs to become an ontologist. Um, So the idea then is how do you create that conversation at scale? And I do know some some good companies that are trying to do it from a behavioral perspective rather than from just a solid skills perspective. Um, I'm thinking Mike Erling, for instance, John. But um, I think the jury is out, Gene, to your question. Um, And I think employers are doing a disservice to themselves by literally falling back into that black box. And, and, you know, there was a complaint for a long time that employees are are ghosting the employers. Well, for a long time, employers ghosted the employees Mm -hmm. because of the way recruiting systems work. And, And people have long memories. They remember that. Yeah, that definitely hurts an employer brand. Uh, John, I know you have more questions, but I, I want to potentially take Mike someplace that we hadn't necessarily prepared for, and that is the metaverse. What does that look like in your estimation as you kind of look into your crystal ball? How will that impla- impact the workplace? I think I've had this conversation before, uh, and, it, and I'm going to take us down a little bit of a rabbit hole, and then I'll bring us back. Mm-hmm. During the flattening of our organizations, which the pandemic occurred, um, it used to be that you would go into a building and you would uh, go to work and you would go to a meeting and you'd be in a conference room where you'd have to get up for a bio break or you'd want to go get a cup of coffee and you'd run into someone else and you'd eventually you'd have these side conversations which allowed you to connect this tapestry of what was going on in the organization. And I believe very firmly that outside of, in the hallway kinds of conversations, second level, third level, if you think about it from a ring perspective, uh, conversations is where a lot of the innovation came from, okay? And when we fell into this flat screen environment that we use now, and and for those in the podcast, you can't see me waving my hands, but it became very flat and two-dimensional. And so we started to lose that second ring, third ring, and fourth ring. 
I think what the metaverse can do for us, if we allow it to, is it gives us the ability to go back to those out of band conversations that created such unique connections for us before. That's the first hope for me for the metaverse is that I'm allowed to be virtually present in, in ways that I hadn't thought of at all. And as an example, you know, I've got grandkids and I've got an Oculus because I do virtual chats with them all the time. And what will happen is I'll end up in a virtual chat room and you know what, some avatar next to me will come up and start talking. And so there's an opportunity there. That's the first forward looking metaverse thing. The second thing around the metaverse is, is literally the ability to have a conversation an interface conversation with your technology that doesn't involve a keyboard or a mouse. I mean, how old is this technology? And if you can do that, you're democratizing the um, conversation for those who may not necessarily have that as their native input device. So it offers that opportunity as well, particularly for the frontline worker, the deskless worker, and the individual who, um, in, in a manufacturing environment in particular, for instance, they're pretty technically savvy. They just don't necessarily have the same tether. So I think it extends that ability as well. So those are two thoughts. So, so I think I think was in a conversation with you. Well, I may I may have misplaced this, but somebody recently noticed that we're already in the metaverse. That what I am doing today, right now, is I am yelling at your image on a screen. I, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your avatar. Um, um, I'm talking to something that is a two-dimensional representation of you. And it's happening in some space that's not, if you physically look at me, it's some dude yelling at a laptop. Um, <laughs> because I'm in the metaverse with you. And the difference is, the difference is, this is a planned box in the metaverse. There are three of us in the box, okay? Mm -hmm. Whereas what the metaverse offers the opportunity is for that second ring and that third ring moving forward. So as we extend beyond webcams and, and computer screens into potential um, other areas of the metaverse, that's to me where the difference comes in. Sure, but that's version 2.0. Well, all I'm, all I'm noticing out loud, as loud as I can, is that we're already in the heart of version 1.0. It's not some future thing. It's some right now thing. Don't disagree. And, that, that, and it'll be an extension of this. It's not, we're going to pack up and move to the metaverse tomorrow, we're going to stay right where we are. And, and those rings will become more and more accessible to us because hopefully, yeah, it has to, it has to happen. Well, so, happen. so is this the, is this the starting point for the metaverse? I mean, everything has a starting point. Do you think this is it? Oh, I think it's 80 steps too. Yeah. Yes. I, I think they'll, they'll date the real start of the metaverse to the day that they found COVID. So March 20th or mm -hmm. whatever it was, 2020. Um, and that's when it started because the entire top white collar workforce moved online en masse mm -hmm. right then and there. Um, and then the kids have been moving online fairly regularly, but it wasn't possible to make a living online yet. So, so, so there's been a migration to this metaverse that we are already in um, that's been going on for some time. Well, 
I'll even take it one step further. And I agree with you. That's when they're going to say the metaverse. But think back. I've been working out of a home office since 2001. In 2005, my WebEx conferences didn't involve video. And so, um, as a matter of fact, it didn't even involve an avatar. It was just a list of participants on the right, and you either went on or off mute. And typically, it was a dial-in, and, and I shared PowerPoint. So little by little, because of the confluence of things like software development, bandwidth, the reach into more and more homes, and a more familiarization with the techniques of having that, we slowly find ourselves moving into a flat screen video environment. That same set of, of processes are going to take over the version 2.0 of the metaverse as John typified it. And you know what? I like that, actually. I'm going to call it V2.0. There you go. Well, what a great conversation. I hope so. Yeah, this was a good conversation. Uh, what what didn't we get to? What's burning you up that we didn't talk about today? I really, really hope for those of us in HR that we recognize that this is a unique time to um, it's an exciting time. You know, everybody always said they wanted to see the table. You got it. Um, and um, I always talk about it from the perspective of, and I've heard it called many things, hard HR, soft HR. I actually, at one point, we talked about it as psychedelic HR. But the point is, is that because of what the efficiencies of what technology has done, as HR practitioners, if you really are human driven and you really are uh, want that to be a part of your, your psyche and your DNA, embrace the fact that the technology is creating efficiencies, but it's not necessarily creating answers. You create the answers. You're the one that now you have this data at your fingertip. You're the one that can infer the patterns and create interventions. And to me, that's the most exciting part of being an HR practitioner is you can do very human things outside of the technology that's enabled you to do that. Definitely the desired state. I think that's that's well said. Well said. For our next conversation, we'll say you have the data, you have the decision making. Let's talk about. Now, what do you do with it? That's right. That's right. Let's what talk about the liability. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Because if you oh, know well, if you know something, you should be doing something about it. Oh, John, you're totally. John and I have long had this conversation that HR, you've got the data and you've got the privacy. Uh, and so you're, you be, you better get the lawyers involved because it's on you. Be yep. prepared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we're almost out of time today. John, do you want to wrap us up? Well, Mike, why don't you tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and, and snag hours more of your wisdom now that they've had a little taste? So I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the flat metaverse all over. I speak all the time and those kinds of things, but the easiest way, feel free to connect uh, M Bollinger at CSOB.com. But the easiest way to find me is I got into Twitter very, very early. And you may or may not know that Bollinger is a very famous French champagne and the champagne of choice of James Bond 007. I have the at Bollinger handle. And I get random tweets all the time from people having a bottle of Bollinger. But if you'd like to connect, just send me a DM on at Bollinger, easiest thing in the world to remember, or send me an email or a LinkedIn. 
And um, I believe, and Cornerstone has allowed me to do this, that a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm happy to take any and all conversations if it makes sense. And I learn as much from them as I hope I can help others learn. Great. Thanks for taking the time, Mike. We've been speaking with Mike Bollinger, who is the vice president of all sorts of important global strategic initiatives at Cornerstone. I do stuff. He does stuff. He does a lot of stuff. Lots of it. Um, You've been listening to The Work, a podcast hosted by John Subzer and Gina Killian. We'll see you back here the next time. Bye-bye. 